We're back in the Gospel of John this morning. So if you'll turn to John chapter 6. I know it's been a a few weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John. I I do love the holidays and I love taking a few weeks to set our minds to think about some other biblical uh, themes and topics. But I, for one, am very thankful to be back in this Gospel and this just absolutely Mount Everest of chapter 6 that we have been climbing. Since it's been a little bit, I'd like to take a brief brief moment to remind us of where we are before we really begin. We've been walking through, as you know, chapter 6 here, where the theme has been heavy once again on belief and bread. Namely, that Jesus is the bread of life. That's the verse that we looked at, verse 35, last time that we were in this gospel. He had performed this marvelous miracle of turning a few small loaves that belonged to the young boy into a feast for thousands upon thousands of people. He then sent his disciples to the other side of the sea, where he went away by himself to pray, walked out onto the sea, the stormy sea in the middle of the night to them. Now on the next day, the crowd is hungry again, so they chase Jesus down on the other side of the sea, and they find him teaching in the synagogue. And that's when he really begins to teach them about the miracle of the fish and the loaves. Mainly, he's teaching them that this miracle was a sign meant to point to a greater truth outside of itself. Namely, not just that Jesus gives bread, but that he came to this earth to be bread to satisfy sin-sick souls. As he's been teaching about that, he's also been exposing the very shallow belief of this crowd that chased him down on the other side of the sea. He exposes the fact that they're not truly seeking Jesus. They want more bread. One could say that they're not interested in him as bread, They want him to make more bread for them. They are unaware of the true satisfaction that they can find in Christ and are altogether disinterested with it anyway because the tummy is a rumbling. This presses hard upon our hearts and minds because it causes us to to really examine our own hearts and to see with the help of the Spirit, whether or not we truly have saving belief or are we just like this crowd following Jesus for for what He gives to us and what more we want from Him. This text, in fact, should do that to us. God help the poor soul who looks at the written Word and is never challenged by it, but always assumes the best of themselves. At the same time, if we're not careful, we can learn about belief in John and begin to think that the standard is so high that nobody has saving faith in Jesus. Nobody does. I surely don't. I thought I believed. And I don't, even though you might be a real believer in Jesus. There's no way to truly believe in Him because Jesus is constantly exposing false belief. Well, who can have true, genuine belief then? 
Christ is constantly dealing with the dullness of the human heart throughout this gospel. And it would be easy to see in ourselves our own dullness and then doubt our own salvation. For those who are not truly believing upon Him, you should doubt your own salvation because you don't have it. But for those who are truly believing in Christ, you should not doubt your salvation. Isn't it something that the people who should most doubt their salvation because they don't have it are often the ones who are most confident that they do? And a lot of times the people who are saved struggle the most with doubt and assurance of salvation. Is that how God wants it to be? Does God want you to doubt Him at every turn? Does God want you to think about the gospel and think there's no way He could have saved me? I don't think He did. Maybe He didn't. Maybe He didn't save me. Maybe my sin was not laid upon Christ. Often those who should have the least confidence have the most, and those who should have the most have the least. Is that you this morning? I wonder if you struggle with doubts about your salvation. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you, do you truly believe in Him? But you're constantly struggling with doubt. Have I truly believed in Him? You're constantly plagued with uncertainty. If that's you, I do believe and I do hope that you will find this passage that we're going to look at this morning a welcome pillow to rest your weary head upon. We're going to look at verses 36 through 40 of chapter 6 to discover five truths regarding the certainty of our salvation. Let's read our text. John chapter 6, verses 36 through 40. Let's go ahead and start at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, this text is so beautiful and so rich. It is so comforting and encouraging to my own soul that I ask by Your help this morning that You would help me to convey that not with my own wisdom, not with my own ideas, but that I would just convey the truth that's here, Lord. And that you would give us all eyes to see it. That we would leave here so confident that we belong to Christ Jesus. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first truth regarding the certainty of our salvation is that Christ's people will certainly come to Him. Christ's people will certainly come to Him. 
We read there in verses 35 and 36, Jesus proclaiming that he is the bread of life. And then he says this statement, I, but I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. These two statements are striking. In verse 35, it's this open hand of salvation, this open plea, whoever is hungry and whoever is thirsty, come and eat and drink freely. And then verse 36, but I told you that you've seen me and you don't believe. On the one hand, it's the incredible offer from God incarnate that whoever, no distinction, Greek, Jew, male, female, everyone who comes to him will be satisfied eternally. But you don't come to him, that's what he's saying. You don't believe. You've seen him, but you don't believe. He's talking to the crowd in front of him. Anyone who comes, anyone who believes will will receive true, lasting satisfaction in Christ, but you don't believe. Isn't that just so, so sad? True satisfaction is offered to this huge crowd. They're not interested in it. They'd rather have their physical needs met. They're not interested in finding satisfaction in Christ. They want Christ to satisfy their bellies. What a sad state we are all in when we are dead in sin. Jesus' statement at first is a bit perplexing because when you think about verse 36, when did he say, you have seen me? But I said to you that you have seen me. When did you say that? There's a few different views on that. I think that probably the easiest view is that it's not recorded for us. It's not there because we don't have a clear statement of Jesus saying, you have seen me. So he probably said it at some point and it's just not recorded for us. But if you look back at verse 26, he says, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then, he, then they go on to say, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? And Jesus responded to that by saying, verse 32, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So do you see what's kind of happening here? Is they're saying, show us something so that we can see it and believe it. And Jesus is saying, this is what you need to see and believe is me because I came down from heaven as the bread of life. And now he's saying in verse 36, you've seen me. You've had the offer of salvation, of of bread that satisfies your soul, of, of water that will never leave you thirsty. And you don't believe. You don't believe it. You're looking at bread of life, at living water, and you don't believe. You see how hard the human heart is? As we said a few weeks ago, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. And Jesus says it so clearly. You're seeing and you don't believe. You see it and you don't believe it. Such a large crowd. They ate the miracle food. They chased Jesus down because they ate the miracle food. They want to make him king. They've heard his teaching. And they still, it's, it's still not enough to move them to saving faith. 
It's like Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's almost this sense of exasperation when when we see people not believing in Christ. Have you ever felt that? Why won't you believe? Haven't you seen my life? Look at what Christ has done in me. Why won't you believe? Haven't you seen what it says in the Bible? Haven't you seen the earth? Haven't you seen creation? Why won't you believe? My friends, if people could look at God incarnate and not believe in Him, that shows you how hard our human heart is. It's not that some people make better choices than others. That's not what happens. But often, you and I, when we are faced with people who won't believe, what do we do? We grow discouraged. Perhaps we grow anxious, frustrated. Was that Jesus' emotion here? How did Jesus deal with it? You see, Jesus knows something very well. Even if this entire crowd is, were to walk away from him, which they will eventually, God's plan has still not failed. His plan to save is not in vain. As sad as it is that they have not believed, God's plan continues on unfazed, unchanged. Jesus knows this very well, so he says in verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. He's come down from heaven. You don't believe. You see me. You ate the food. You've heard the teaching. You don't believe me. But that's because all, that's fine because all that the Father gives me will come. They will come. All of you in this crowd might not actually come to me and as sorrowful as that may be, it's not an occasion for anxiety because the Father has given me a people and they will come to me. This is not a maybe. It's not a probably. Jesus isn't saying, the Father has given me a people and I really hope that they come to me. The Father has given me a people and I'm trying my hardest to bring them to me. The Father has given me a people and please, pretty please come to me. None of those things. He makes a clear simple, resolute statement, they will come. It will happen. Christ does not change His message to make it more palatable for the people who can't stand it. He doesn't negotiate the terms. He doesn't try at all to do new things, to draw people in. He doesn't do any of those things. He is confident in the sovereign plan of God that His people will come to Him. They're going to come. Now, let's think a little bit of the implications of this then. That means that we now see the reason why this crowd did not come to Jesus. If all that the Father has given to Christ will come to Christ, And this crowd is not coming to him. What does it mean? It means that they might have eaten fill of the loaves. They might have been blessed in a number of ways by the ministry of Christ. But the Father did not give them to the Son. 
Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. This is a theme that's going to be revisited a few times in this gospel. And it's a biblical theme that is often hated so much today. People do not like to hear of the sovereignty of God and salvation. They think that it means that God is unwilling to save. That perhaps there are some people who would really like to believe in Jesus, but they can't because they're not elect. So God won't save them. Could you imagine that being God? Further, could you imagine a more terrible distortion of what is being taught here? <laughs> that people really would love to be saved, but God didn't elect them, you know? So they're not saved. Sorry. You know, it's only for this elite group of people. I'm sorry. J.C. Riles responds to that in a really, really succinct way. He says, It would not be true to say that a man has a real wish and desire to come to Christ, but no power to come. It would be far more true to say that a man has no power to come because he has no desire or wish. It is not true that he would come if he could. No, that's not true. It's not true that there are some people who would love to be saved but won't be because they're not those that are elect of the Father. That's not true. That's not what this teaches. This text shows us that people in their own sinfulness, left to their own devices, they will choose physical bread over the bread of life 10 out of 10 times. 11 out of 10 times. People lost in sin will choose their own physical uh, nourishment and satisfaction over spiritual satisfaction every single day of the week. That is what we see and we are confronted with over and over and over again in this gospel. Is that you can't come. Think about it. If they are staring at God incarnate. They have eaten of this miracle. They have seen His power. And they've heard His powerful teaching. And none of it moves them to believe in Him. Why do you think that is? Is it because the twelve disciples made a better choice than this crowd? Is it because the twelve disciples responded to the altar call and nobody else did? No. The reason why is because of verse 37. They have not been given by the Father to the Son. Had they been given by the Father to the Son, they would come to Him. In other words, those who will and who do come to Christ are proving that they have been given by Christ to the Father. You see, there is no such thing as people who would love to be saved but can't because they are not of the elect. No, everybody who wishes to be saved proves that they are of God's elect. The reason why you are saved is because of that. The reason why you have the desire 
It's because of God's first desire to save you. As this text says it, to give you to His Son. There is this divine movement that takes place that is unseen to you and I. Our coming to Christ is the Father's giving us to Christ. This action of coming to Him is the Father giving you to Christ. That's why you came. That's why you believe today. That's why you believe today is because the Father has given you to Christ. Think about what this text is saying. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is predestination. Friends, as much as people want to like it or not, as much as maybe you like it or not, it is all over the pages of Scripture. At some time in eternity past, I don't know when, at some time in eternity past, the Father elected a people in Christ to give to Christ. This people constituted a gift of the Father to the Son. Some people believe that the way that this came about is that the Father saw down the timeline of time and saw who was going to come to Jesus And he said, okay, Jesus, do you see all of these people who came to you? I'm going to give them to you. But what this gospel shows us is that if that had been the case, what God would have looked down the timeline of times to see is no one coming to Jesus. No one believing in him. That is what all of human history shows clearly, is that people lost in their sin stay lost. Unless there is some sort of literal divine intervention. It's what we call Arminianism. There are others who believe that God knew all of the things that were possible. This is a very theoretical thought. All of the things that were possible, that could possibly maybe happen in all of this, these different universes that He could potentially create. And so what He did is He chose the universe that was going to be bring about the most good by placing the, the people who were most apt to say yes to Jesus in the right place at the right time so that maybe, hopefully, they'll come to Jesus. That's what we call Molinism. But does, does that sound like anything, like what Jesus is saying? I mean, I'm not asking you to be a scholar. Just read the text. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. You see a clear cause and effect. The Father giving, the people coming. The reason for the coming is because of the Father's giving. The only reason why we struggle with this is because it's hard for us to palate, just like it was for this crowd. They will eventually get sick of Jesus' teaching and walk away from Him. All the Father will come to me. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Jesus, the Word become flesh, has chosen His words with infinite wisdom. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3-5. Listen to how Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he saw down the corridors of time and elected all of those of us who were going to choose Jesus in time and then saved us. Does that sound right? Or does it say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? How many of you were here before the foundation of the world? Anyone? Didn't think so. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us for adoption. That's another way of saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. These are the people who have been predestined for adoption as sons through Christ. Do you know how he finishes that verse? According to the purpose of his will. Not according to what people decided to do. Not according to the best case scenario universe. But according to the purpose of his will. In other words, he did it the way that he wanted to do it. He did it the way that he chose to do it. Paul praises God for that. That's what's so sad is that this is a teaching, this is a doctrine that should make our hearts inflamed, but instead people hate it. But here Paul understands this doctrine and it causes him to say, blessed be God. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He has done it. And that's exactly what it should do to you and I. It's not a cause for a moment to puff up the chest and turn up the nose at anyone. It is a cause to say, blessed be God, because He has done it. Some people hate this doctrine. Paul the Apostle loves it. Now, we could seriously spend all day thinking about that one aspect and talking about it and looking at scriptural proof after scriptural proof. But let's narrow in on why this should give us certainty of our salvation. Why should that give you certainty of your salvation? Because I do believe that that is why this section of Scripture is here. I believe that that is why Jesus is saying all of this. is not just to make these people feel bad that for not coming to Him. That's not what He's trying to do. Or to make it feel like they can't be saved. That's not what he's trying to do. I believe that this is here to give us certainty in the reason of why we came to Christ in the first place. You see, brothers and sisters, your faith should not be in the fact that you made a profession of faith. People make a profession of faith all the time who are far from God, who do not know God. Your confidence, your certainty should not be in that you prayed a prayer or that you were at youth camp one time and you said that thing, you went to the front, you did the deal and they dunked you and you got a t-shirt. That cannot be where your confidence lies. Do you know why? Have you ever made a bad decision? But you think that your eternity relies upon your decision? I don't think so. If you find yourself believing in, trusting in, loving Christ this morning, it is because the Father gave you to the Son. 
that should be a moment to just say, whoa. It's because the Father gave you to the Son. All of that belief and trust and love is evidence that this is true. Otherwise, you would still belong to the crowd of those who want Jesus to give them bread, not be their bread. You would still be there if the Father had not given you to the Son. You would not have come to the Son. But since you came to the Son, it is proof that the Father gave you to the Son. Not a single person who has been given to the Son will fail to come to Him. Not one. All of those who belong to Him will come to Him. My friends, this is why human history continues on today. It is not because God is waiting for the Antichrist. That is not why human history comes it is still continuing on. Human history continues on today because the Father has given the Son a people that have not been born yet. Why didn't history exist, just stop at the Protestant Reformation when people were turned back to God? You hadn't been born yet. And you've been given by the Father to the Son. Why does it continue on today? It's because there is a people out there that exist only right now in the heart and mind of God. They have been given by the Father to the Son. That's why the Son is still out today. Why you're alive. Why things continue on. Now, lest we spend our entire time on the first point, let's continue on. Second Christ's people will certainly remain in Him. Jesus goes on to say, And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Herein we find a, a point of clarification if we need it. As we said a moment ago, there are those who believe that the doctrine of election is evil because it teaches that there are people who would love to be saved, but they can't because God has not chosen them because they're not elect. Well, read the rest of the verse. Just continue reading. It should put all of that to rest. We find here a promise from the mouth of God that whoever that means each person individually who comes to Christ will not be rejected. There has never been a person in the history of mankind ever who has brought saving faith to Christ who has been turned away for any reason whatsoever. No one has ever been too sinful. No one has ever been too weak. No one has ever been too unknown. No one has ever been too small, too destitute to be accepted by Christ. No one has ever been so filthy that Christ looked upon them and said, I don't want you. Let's understand the components of this statement. Jesus says, whoever... Again, this means that he is talking about individuals. He began by saying all that the Father. He's talking about a collective group of people. And now he says, whoever. This is talking about each individual person who comes to him. 
I much prefer the way that the New King James and the NASB render this word. Instead of saying whoever, they have the one who comes to me. I love that. The one who comes to me. The word comes is just another way of speaking of believing in Christ. He was just talking about belief in verse 36. They didn't believe in him, though they had seen him. And now he's talking about coming to him. This is a synonym. But then the words cast out, they refer to throwing out. You know, almost every single time that you see that word in the Gospels, it's referring to casting out demons. That Jesus will never do what he did to them, to you. Tell them to leave. Tell them to find a new place. That Jesus will never do that to you. You see, sometimes it's, it's easy for us to, to wrap our minds around and accept the fact that God has given Christ to people. Just some indiscernible, indiscriminate amount of people. It's vague and it's an abstract idea, but it's easier to understand that than to think that He chose you that you personally, that before the foundations of the world, that you personally, individually, you were chosen. He thought of you, and he set his affections upon you and said, Son, I'm giving you this person. And that the Son now holds you in such a way where he will never reject you. He will never cast you out. Because you have been given to Him by the Father. You will never be made to leave. You personally. Not just Christ's bride, but you individually. If you have come to Christ with saving faith, it's because the Father has given you to the Son. And when you came to the Son, the Son did not look at you in disgust and displeasure because He was hoping for someone better than you. When you came to the Son, as filthy as you were, the Son took you in because the Father gave, him to, gave you to Him. It's easy to look at all these other people, these church folk. At least these other people, they seem like they, they trust in Christ better than I do. They seem like they know more about the Bible than I do. They probably have a, a better credit score than I do. Their living situation is better than I do. I can understand God choosing them. And maybe he holds tightly to them. But me? Yes. Each one of us individually. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John. Because every single one of us came poor, blind, and destitute to the Son. The Son would never reject those who came to him because those who come to him have been given to him by the Father. But not only that, Christ will never tire of having to bear you up. Do you know that there is not one single person who belongs to Christ that Christ does not have to bear up? Have you ever felt like the weak Christian? Like the one who God probably grows tired of you because you always find yourself in this new thing? You're always failing, you're always stumbling, you're always uncertain, you're always this and that. 
And you must feel like Christ must grow tired of me. But he never does. Because you've been given to him by the Father. You individually are his love gift from the Father. Do you think the Son would spurn the gift of the Father? Never. Christ continues to bear you up to this day, this very moment, because He loves you. Because the Father gave you to Him. You know, my son, he's learning so much right now. He loves to destroy our house. He's a little tornado in our home. Those of you who have had children, you understand what I mean. If you were ever to stop by in the middle of the day and see our home, you would probably think we're unbelievers because he just wrecks shop all day long. He's really active. He loves crawling and exploring as little ones do. And the way that our house is laid out, he has to come around the corner to come into my office And when he does, he's often crawling in and he stops in the doorway and he smiles at me. And then he comes in. What kind of father would I be if I looked at him and I said, don't come in here. You're just going to make a mess. Get away from me. You're filthy. Look at your shirt. Look at how much of a mess you've already made of yourself. Get out of here. I don't want you near me. You're just going to make a mess. But isn't that how we think that God must think of us sometimes? No, I see him come around the corner and say, what are you going to do now? Go ahead, make a mess. And it's not that God invites us to make a mess of our lives. But it's that when he chose you before the foundation of the world, He understood everything about you. He knew your failings and your strengths. He knew he would have to bear you up. And that was not enough to stop him. He didn't say that's too much. I can't do all of that. Instead, he gave you to the Son, and the Son took you in. And the Son loved this gift from the Father so much that He came to this earth and was humiliated. He came to His own people and they rejected Him. And you know why He did that? Because the Father gave Him a people. And those people needed to be saved. They needed to be cleansed. They needed Him to live a perfect life. Life that they could not live. So he did it because he loves you. Because he said, these are my people. My father gave them to me. And then he bore your sin. He didn't look at your filth and say, you're disgusting. Get away from me. He said, give me that. Lay your filth on me. And when you cast your sin upon the Son You're cleansed. The Father washes you clean as though you had never sinned. My friends, how could we doubt that salvation? 
There is no greater truth in the world than that truth. The Father has given you to the Son. If you ever doubt your salvation, come to this text. Look at it. Read it. Burn it in your brain and your heart and say, the Father gave me to the Son. He's not letting me go. I know I messed up. I know I failed. I hate my sin. I repent of it. But He's not letting me go even in my sin. Friends, that is love that we just cannot fathom. And that's love that we cannot extinguish. But there's more. Because that's point two. Third, it is God's will that we have this certainty. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. In chapter 5, we get this heavy dose of teaching from Christ regarding his perfect unity to the Father and in the incarnation, his perfect obedience to the Father. And here he refers to this once again, that Christ's coming to this earth wasn't some sort of cosmic rebellion where he came to this earth to do whatever he wanted to do. No, he came under the Father's sending to do the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? To open up a door of salvation and beckon sinners dead in their sin to come and be saved. To display to the world through Christ that perfect obedience really isn't that hard. Maybe that's what it was. That he wanted Jesus to come and, and prove us all to be silly fools. Look, he did it. Why can't you? Is that what happened? No. Jesus tells us that the Father's will is that Jesus lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. That he would lose not even one. Can somebody give me a napkin? In fact, after saying in verse 37 that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Verse 30, 38 begins with what word? All of our translations have it. For. Now you think about that. So let's paraphrase this. Each person who comes to me, I will never cast out because I came down to do the will of my Father. And this is the will of my Father that I bear up each individual person He has given me and not lose even one of them. Brothers and sisters, it is the almighty will of God, the will of the almighty God, the sovereign living God, that your salvation be eternally secured. Have you ever thought about it that way? That it's God's will that you be eternally secure? Not that Christ would make a way for you to be saved, but then you can mess up and commit venial sins that kind of drops you out of grace, and then you have to perform sacraments to get God to forgive you some more so that you can stay in the state of salvation again. And then at the end of your life, you'll die and go wait in this cosmic holding cell where if maybe people pray enough for you and if Mary prays for you, then you'll get out of that holding cell and maybe get into heaven. In case you didn't know, that's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church about salvation. But this passage flies 
in the face of that. That the will of God is that you would know that you're saved. But not just that you would know that you're saved, that you would be eternally secure. He sent His Son to secure your eternity. Your salvation is secure because it is God's will that it be. Not because you would like it to be, and it would be nice if it was. It's because it's the will of God. (laughs) Father has given you to the Son. Do you think that the Father would give the gift, this gift to the Son, that Jesus may lose? That maybe Jesus won't actually get? Because, well, I didn't really account for this. They were saved and then they weren't saved. You know, but hey, at least you know, 35% of your gift made it to heaven. No, my friends. In giving you to the Son, this wraps up by the will of God your eternal security. That every single individual person will make it to, la- to everlasting life, to be with Christ forever, because you are the love gift of the Father to the Son. You can't be lost if you're His. You're His forever. And it's unchangeable. Because the Father gave you to the Son. Maybe if I say that enough, it'll start to ring true in all of our hearts. The Father gave us to the Son. This is a sure gift. Ultimately, I will not fall away from the faith because it is God's will that Christ keeps me. It's not because I, I didn't wake up today because, and still believe in Jesus because I'm a pastor or because I know a lot about this or I've read these books. You didn't wake up believing in Jesus today because you just really love God more than other people do. You woke up believing in Jesus today because it is God's will that the Son keep you believing. Friend, how could you ever be lost? How could you ever ever, ever be lost. It's God's will. Test your assurance of salvation, certainly. The Scriptures tell us to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, but never doubt the work that the Father has willed to take place in you. Never doubt God. Doubt you. Doubt yourself. But never doubt Him. He has willed a certain thing to take place in you. You sin. Sometimes you look at Christ and you look at Scripture and what you're called to be. And then you look at yourself and you see how short you fall and you think of your, to yourself, of yourself. Am I even saved? How could I possibly even be saved? I don't know. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God has elected me. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Remember, when that happens, to come back to this passage and recite again to yourself, it is the will of God that my salvation be eternally secure. Eternally. Not for 10 years. He didn't give you 10-year life. He gave you eternal life. He sent His Son. He didn't spare His Son to secure this for you. But what if I can't persevere and I fail and I falter? Number four, the fourth truth. 
You are not the basis of your certainty. Christ is. Christ is the basis of our certainty. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Christ is saying, I came to do what God wants me to do. He, that's what He came for. Your eternal security rests upon the Son performing the will of the Father. Your eternal security rests upon the Son performing the will of the Father. Not you. So question. Did Christ perfectly obey the Father in His earthly ministry? Or was it mostly perfectly? Did Christ do this even though it meant death on the cross? Did Christ totally and fully bear the punishment of His people on the cross? Did Christ have His work approved by the Father and thus be resurrected on the third day? Does Christ ever live to intercede for us? What Christ has done and what Christ continues to do, this is the basis of our certainty of our salvation. It's Him. Why do we sing songs that say in Christ alone? Because our hope is found in Christ alone. Not ourselves. Not our own effort. Not a decision that we made once upon a time. Not walking the aisle. Not the time that we got baptized. Not our church attendance. Not our Bible reading. It's Christ and His work. This is the basis of our security. I believe that question one from the Heidelberg Catechism just puts this perfectly. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Our greatest comfort, our only comfort in life and death is that Christ bears us up. The temptations of this world are vast and the pain that we experience in this world is tremendous. Life is long. How do I know if I'll keep believing in Him? How do you know? It's because it's Christ's joyful duty to bear you up. Not because you made Him. It's because the Son came down to do the will of the Father. And the Son performed that will perfectly in His earthly ministry. And now, as our great High Priest at the right hand of the Father, He ever lives to intercede for us. How can you possibly be lost ever if this is true of you? If you often struggle with doubting your salvation, and if you truly are saved, it is because you spend more time looking at yourself than at Christ. When you look at Christ, there's no way you can doubt your salvation. When you look at His finished work, when you look at what Scripture says that He continues to do for you, 
There is no way that you can doubt your salvation unless you just don't believe it. But when we focus on ourselves and our inability, all we can do is doubt. That's all that we're left with. So my friends, look to Christ. Look to Him. Cherish this truth in this passage that you can't ever be lost. Christ is bearing you up and that is what your certainty is based upon. It's not upon your perfect obedience, but His. So for you to be lost, it would have to mean that two, one of two things would have to happen. That either Christ was no longer able to continue to bear you up because you were just too much of a problem and he ran out of strength, or that Christ is rebelling against his Father and is no longer desiring to do the will of his Father. Are either of those two things possible? No. So neither can you ever be lost if you are his. Fifth and lastly, Christ's people have a future hope. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, friends, I still have a whole lot of notes here, but let's just get to the point. Jesus gets really eschatological here. And if that is a word that sounds like French to you, it just means he's talking about the end times. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And we would not dare open up a conversation about eschatology after we've been here for so long already. All I want to say here is that we have grown up in the waters Bad eschatology. And how is that seen? Because so many people do not look at the end times with hope, but fear. So many people think about the end, and all that we can think about is when is the Antichrist coming? Where's the mark of the beast? What's the, is the iPhone the mark of the beast? Our bar, remember when barcodes were the mark of the beast? Everything's the mark of the beast. Is Trump the, the Antichrist? Is Obama the Antichrist? Who's the Antichrist? Where is he? And all we could think about is tribulation and tribulation and bad, 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 bad. But do you know the book of Revelation is a book of hope? It's not supposed to scare you. It's not a nightmare for children. I remember when I was a kid, we went through the book of Revelation in the school we were at, and I was horrified. Because all we focused on was the demons and the dragons and the evil and the evil and the tribulation and the Antichrist. But the end is our great hope that Christ is coming back. That he's going to raise us up from the dead. And we're going to be with him forever. Friends, if we can't look to that and if our eschatology, the way that we think about the end, does not instill hope in us, we need to throw it away. Because it's no good. You can read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, and you will see that Paul starts to talk about eschatology, not to scare people, but in fact, because the people were grieving. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who don't have hope. And then you know what he does? He talks about the end. 
the book of Revelation, it's about how glorious the end is going to be. The book of Revelation is about our great future hope. And right here, the future hope that Jesus says that we have is that he will raise us up on the last day. You will be raised imperishable. You will throw off the body of the likeness of Adam and put on a body like the man of heaven. You will be sinless. Christ will raise you up. After he has borne you up your entire life, you will die. Your spirit will go to be with him in heaven. And then he will come at the last day and there will be one resurrection. Everyone will be raised, the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you have trusted in Christ, you will be raised imperishable where you will be with him forever. What is not to look forward to about that? We have everything to look forward to in our future. And it is because our future is secure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great truths that we just barely scratched the surface of today. I pray that you would use my meager efforts, imperfect as they were, to edify your people and glorify Christ. I pray that you would fill us with the certainty of our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.